Young Americans go to Europe and figure out their relationship squabbles while struggling to stay alive in both of today's feature films here at the Los Angeles Online Film Critics Society Weekly. Join us. we got a great crowd today. Hello, everybody. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting and IGN and host of the podcasts Critically Acclaimed, The Two Shot, Cancel Too Soon, All Our Yesterdays, and Only the Best. Uh, and I am your guest host this week on LAOFCS Weekly. And joining me is a panel of some really, really great film critics. I'm excited to talk to them. Uh, we have got Louis Lecca from Luke, from Luke the Fridge. Luke the Fridge. It's NukeTheFridge.com and Nerdy Part. That's awesome. Cool beans. Uh, we got Scott Mendelson from Sorry. Forbes. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And we have got Dan Merle from Screen Junkies. Hello. And of course, the singles champion at the movie trivia showdown. <laughs> I will get you one day, Dan. <laughs> one day, it's good I will get you. Not not competing in trivia contests at a table together. I know it's a real pleasure, and uh, <laughs> uh, I'm really excited to be here for all you guys to talk about two films that are have eerie similarities and yet could not be more different. <laughs> what a treat it's going to be! It's actually kind of a slow Fourth uh, of July weekend. There's not a ton of new releases. There's a couple of indies that sadly none of us have seen. I want to give them a quick shout out. Uh, there's Marion and Leonard. Uh, that is a documentary about Leonard Cohen uh, and uh, also Phil the directorial debut of Greg Kinnear mm. we didn't we were not invited <laughs> you Just, can always pay for your ticket I could I could but I did not have the time to go see it ahead of time and sadly yesterday was 4th of July sadly <laughs> what a horrible day uh, but uh, before we get to our movie pick of the week I want to talk to you about a film that everyone is talking about it is uh, one of the most in your face horror movies I think we've seen in a while <laughs> who wants to talk uh, first about Ari Aster's Midsommar Ooh. I think I'll jump in sure. Sure. Yeah, let's do it I was shocked uh, when the cinema score came in that it wasn't an F, that it was actually <laughs> better than what Hereditary got. Because I, I, my, my, my pull quote, uh, which uh, are non-traditional, which means they never get uh, used anywhere, was that it makes Hereditary <laughs> look mainstream. That uh, was what I came out of thinking about that summer. Um, I, I think it's, uh, it, first of all, it makes him a must-see director for me. As far as, like, I just think he, both of his films have been intensely interesting. Uh, more of a thinker, though, for me. That, like, I came out of Hereditary in love with that movie. Uh, this one is more of like a, I need to see it again, I need to process it more, watch it more, decode it a little bit more. So I thought it was, um, paradoxically, a, a little more um, traditional and a little and much more complex than hereditary. Uh, I, I, both things. I, I certainly think, what I think is really fascinating about Midsommar is that it's kind of steeped in the tradition of folk horror. And if you have seen The Wicker Man, either version, but hopefully the original good one, you, you do know where it's going. And there's a lot of scares that are kind of lifted from other stories about urbanites going to rural areas and getting their just desserts, everything from Texas Chainsaw Massacre onward. And yet, yeah, you're right, Ari Aster makes this his own thing. Lewis, what did you think of the film? Uh, well, I got the show notes for today, and uh, <laughs> I was at first celebrating Fourth of July, got home like at uh, 10.30 at night. And so I had to watch this, so I'm not going to be here with you guys, the heavyweights of uh, movie movie news and stuff, and not seeing the film. I can take that. That's fine. <laughs> it's not okay, a fact. I'm okay, fat too. Okay, good. So I got there 11 o'clock, and everyone's like, man, it's a slow burn. It's a long film. And I stayed awake through the entire thing. I was very interested in this. It kept me. Kept me I, I, look, it's a slow burn. Uh, there's. I was just thinking, what does it take to make this movie? There's so much. 
symbolism. There's so much stuff on the wall. It's like literally every, on the wall. There's murals yes. throughout mm-hmm. the entire movie that kind of tell you everything that's going to happen. Yes, yeah. in the movie. I interviewed Ari Aster and he talked about that as kind of a meta joke because he knows everyone knows where this movie is going. If you don't know what we're talking about, we forgot <laughs> to kind of mention what it's about. Uh, it is about a bunch of Americans who go to a Swedish folk festival. It only occurs every 90 years. And uh, while they are there, there are a whole bunch of really terrifying red flags that none of them are terribly concerned about because they're anthropology students and every time something horrible happens, they think my thesis is going to be the best thesis. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but also at the center of it is Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner. Florence Pugh, uh, at the beginning of the movie, suffers a really unthinkable tragedy in her life. Kind of while she was at the end of a really terrible relationship with Jack Rayner, but now they can't bring themselves to break up with each other because it's such bad timing. And now they're kind of forced together, and the horrifying elements of the movie will eventually dovetail in with that. Um, anyway, critics are raving. Scott, are you raving about Midsummer? I more or less am. And as far as I too was very disappointed that it got such a high cinema score grade. <laughs> I was, you know, it's, 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 but it doesn't surprise me. Uh, it's, a lighter, you know, comparatively, it's a lighter picture than Hereditary, mm-hmm. and frankly, it's very funny. <laughs> it um, is. It is. I mean, it's. 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 I saw it with my wife, who is a horror junkie, but she generally prefers grindhouse to art house. Mm-hmm. And we had a really, you know, it's if you're in the right mood, it's a great date movie. <laughs> um, it might also ruin your day. Well, if you, you really have to you're dating, if you're going to see this movie, because yes. it'll run you through the um, run you through the ringer. And uh, what I loved about it, and you brought this up a minute ago, and and. In a way that almost reminded me of Titanic, the way that James Cameron mm. had the computer simulated uh, version of here's what happened when the iceberg struck, so you would understand what was going on two hours later. Yeah. Ari Aster uses, you know, horror nerd knowledge, as you said, you know, everyone knows where this is going. Yeah. So he does use the all of the art direction as sort of like, uh oh, what does that mean? <laughs> that can't be good. Um, you know, he he doesn't expect us to be surprised and he uses are, you know, he's not trying to outsmart us, and he uses that as a way to build terror. I actually think surprise, and this is my take, but I actually think surprise is kind of overrated in horror. I think inevitability is ultimately a lot scarier because it's all a matter of, Mm -hmm. we're going to get eaten by that shark. We're all going to be killed by zombies. The virus is going to exterminate the entire human race. Knowing that something terrible is coming and feeling powerless to stop it, I th- feel like it creates a more palpable sense of dread than just, oh, what a twist. It was Rebecca Gayhart was the killer. Who knew? <laughs> well, and that's something that I think is emerged as a theme now in two of his movies, in addition to cults and crazy, you know, the uh, conspiracies and stuff like that, is this theme of inevitability, this idea that uh, things are are just, you, you, you're, you're not in control of it, and things have been destined to end a certain way from the beginning. And that you're right. I, I, for me, that is very much more of like a oh, who's going to escape? Of this idea of just like no, this has already been planned out. You're just watching it unfold. Uh, that is very scary. Yeah. Well, a special shout out to the extras in this movie. I mean, <laughs> yay! I mean, if you look at the background, they were just this face. It was, but it, it worked. It helped the film. You know, it was, it was, it was, and it's a beautiful film to watch with all the roses and stuff like that you see in the trailer. It's a film that is, it's a horror film that is shot in pretty much perpetual daylight, which is a very rare thing. Uh, it takes place in Sweden, northern part of the world, where much like Thirty Days of Night, it's Thirty Days of Day, just nonstop daylight. And a lot of people think that horror is scarier at night because that's where the nightmares come. And personally, I think it's actually a lot scarier when things happen. Right out in the open. Like, do you ever see uh, David Cronenberg's *The Brood*? 
Anyone? No. Been a while. Okay, but there's a, there's a, there's like a teacher in that movie who gets killed like right in the middle of class, right in front of elementary school students, and that's like way scarier than if it happens in like the middle of a forest in like the middle of nowhere because of course you would die there. Why would you ever go to a forest? Forests are the worst places in the world. It is very discouraging. I took I did a college trip to Sweden and we went to a festival and the, I wrote this movie. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, we did. We went to Stockholm for a few days. We were doing like a you know backpacking thing, and it and, and it was during this not the height of it, but during this time, and it is so disconcerting. And, and they they really painted that well. This idea of like you know we went into a, a bar at eleven o'clock at sunset, and we came out at two o'clock at sunrise. And this idea that it is just, you have no internal chronometer for what's going on. All the windows have special curtains. And it's just this thing, like you're, it's like you're living on a different planet. Yeah. And they really captured that very well. Is, is there a line, though? Because I, I admire Midsummer, I think, more than I actually like it at some times. I think because mm-hmm. I'm kind of hyper aware of its influences and such. But is there a line where it stops being, it stops being sort of foreboding and telling you, like, just calling it shots, you're going to die this way? And is there a, a point where it goes... Yeah, we just know what's going to happen next for anyone else. Was anyone else sort of feeling like? Because I feel like the length of it. This movie is well over two hours long. Yeah. Started doing the movie slightly a disservice in the second half, as I was kind yes. of like Monty Python, get bit. on with yeah. it a little bit. I guess shave off about ten minutes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think the third act suffers a little bit. I think the movie's off to the races for the first hour. Yeah. And yeah. there is a point, and anyone who's seen it probably knows what I'm talking about. Where, oh, okay, and then. There's probably, I would argue, about 45 minutes of storytelling in the last 75 minutes of the film, mm-hmm. which isn't automatically a, a flaw. You know, it depends on what you do at that time. Um, but yeah, I do think once the cards are on the table, there's still a lot of movie left in a way that it does a slight disservice to the picture. Are we concerned about, because I think we can all agree that Ari Aster is a very powerful filmmaker. He's melodramatic in a way that a lot of his peers seem uncomfortable with. He tells really emotional storylines about mental illness and our relationship today with the folk dynamics and ideas of the past. But at the same time, there are so many similarities between Hereditary and Midsommar. Not just thematically, but in the way that it's about people dealing with mental illness and trauma who get preyed upon by people uh, who are basically part of cults who exploit that uh, and then it all builds this really big crescendo and it all builds to like this big climax in a little tiny hut mm-hmm. like it's kind of it is similar are we concerned about him being repetitive or do you feel like it's different enough if he oh sorry go ahead. Oh, go ahead if he'd had three years between movies if if hereditary had come out and then this was his next follow up three years later I think I'd be a little more concerned but knowing that like he essentially finished hereditary and like in that process of hereditary just coming out was like the the stars lined up for him to do this movie and he went and did this movie mm-hmm. pretty quickly thereafter I'm, it, it's more of just like on a filmmaking level I think if he makes a third movie now and it returns to all of these same themes then I'm like oh, okay well you know I want to see some some other things come out of that yeah um, for me this one didn't feel I mean for better or worse and I like Hereditary as much as everybody else mm-hmm. that reminded me a lot in terms of plot from of The Witch mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. to the point where it's like I mean this is very well acted but I, I've seen this film a couple of years ago um, this one, at least from a beat by beat, felt very different from that. Yeah. So yes, the themes are very similar, and it's obvious that he has a sandbox that he wants to play in. But it it felt different in terms of how it was about it. That it didn't bother me that much. That what it was about was kind of similar. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I think Midsummer uh, yeah. reminded me. It reminded me a lot of Green Inferno 
for some reason. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's a, well, like I said, it's about urbanites going to yeah. a place where they're uncomfortable, where they have not adapted to live in a more violent, more uh, pure, sort of natural environment, and then they get preyed upon. It's been it's been done. And yeah. I think yeah. the scariest thing about this movie actually is that I've seen people kind of act like this in real life, like the <laughs> cult. You know, that's why that's that's what got me the most. Like mm-hmm. you know, like you were touching upon people preying on on the mentally ill or mm-hmm. people who are down on their lives and stuff. And I think that was the scariest aspect of the movie more than anything. <laughs> I, I love the first act of this movie where it's all about just how their relationship is just full of. I'm sure we've all been in or around a relationship where clearly you're not going to end up together, but mm-hmm. you are going to be together for the next two years because you can't bring yourself to break up with each other and you hate each other so much um so for me that's the part that felt like super genuine and like towards the end when the cult was just taking florence Pugh through breathing exercises <laughs> we felt like so genuine and crazy so we're all we're all basically in agreement that midsummer is rock solid yes all right but it's and yet here at the lafcs we had mm-hmm. a poll and we decided that our critics pick of the week was actually spider-man <laughs> far from home <laughs> with a sound effect. Thank you, Ryan. Ryan, by the way, our producer is doing a wonderful job. Uh, who? Okay, I'm curious here. If you had to guess, then we're all, this is all blind. Who here loves this movie the most? We're not huge fans of Spider-Man: Far From Home. I liked it. Okay. Yeah. Let's take it away, Lewis. What is Spider-Man: Far From Home, and what, you, what was your take? Okay, so I thought it was very fun. Um, I'm not the kind of uh, like fanboy. MCU super fanboy where my expectations are like oh my god it's going to be the best thing ever I I thought they did a good job as a follow up to Endgame Um, I like the kids I'm kind of a young young at heart person so I mean I like the kids you know they're fun stuff like that and I really like the the, the last act Mm -hmm. and the end credit scene is what really got everybody to but I'm Mm -hmm. not going to I'm not going to spoil it no I'm not going to spoil spoil it but but I I like the movie I'm not running to watch it again but I, I like the film. Okay. Ooh, I thought uh, it was fun. The, the plot, by the way, if in case you're, you're hazy yeah. on it, uh, Spider-Man, after the events of Avengers Endgame, uh, Spider-Man is due for a vacation. So he <laughs> and all of his high school buddies, all of whom very conveniently got, uh, they call it blipped instead of snapped, uh, all of them very conveniently all got blipped, so they're still the same age. Whew, that would have been awkward. Uh, and uh, then they go to Europe, and then it turns out there's a whole bunch of evil elemental creatures in Europe, and Spider-Man needs to team up with a new hero named Mysterio. If you've read the comics, you know where that's going, but the movie is <laughs> yeah. gambling on the idea that every Marvel fan knows absolutely nothing about Marvel comics. Um, <laughs> Dan, what was your take on this movie? Uh, I'll out, I will out myself here when we were voting for our pick of the week. I voted for Spider-Man. Over Midsummer, okay. Uh, just because I like both movies, it's uh, I, I and I like Midsummer a lot. But Spider Man for me was the one that I thought delivered the most on uh, its promise. It, it it felt fresh to me. It did not feel like a retread. There are sequences in this film that I thought were the most comic booky, uh, and I can't really say what they are because that would be going the spoiler territory. <laughs> but I, I really thought that they could have gone a very easy way and just kind of made a summer movie that's just like. Eh. That was fun. Uh, but I felt like they went the extra mile. I like the style of this movie. I like the thought that went into how to make the fights in this movie feel fresh in the 23rd, 24th, whatever how whatever Marvel movie it is, and the second one in this Spider-Man franchise. Uh, I like the humor of it. Uh, I was a big fan. I, I thought it was a great... I, I, the, what I, the way that I described it was, I thought it was a really good movie, and it's a great summer movie. 
Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Scott, what's your take? I, by default, liked it a lot more than Homecoming because it didn't make Peter Parker into a, a c- complete incompetent boob who was so bad at his job that I find myself wanting him to give up this costume before he kills somebody. <laughs> that was my big problem with Homecoming. It was basically the curious George of the MCU. Uh, by default, he is a pretty solid, competent superhero. Ergo, I was able to enjoy myself. Um Overall, as far as the film goes, I enjoyed the summer vacation antics with the kids a lot more than the you know comic book superheroics. Um, that's not necessarily the fault of the film; it's just personal preference. You know, uh, I don't know how far you've all made into Stranger Things season three, but I enjoyed the kids just being the kids a lot more than I enjoyed the uh oh something's out there. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal was very good. Um, but that's not a surprise. He's a generally decent actor. Um, the dialogue was, once again, a little snarkier than your average MCU film. Mm. It really does feel like a Sony picture. Um, I think it ends well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it ends well. I do like the endings. I do like the endings. But I do think it has the same... I don't even know if it's a problem. But yes, this version of Spider-Man is very much tied into basically being Iron Man's apprentice. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Now, there's many versions of Spider-Man, so there's no law saying this can't be one of them. You know, it's just as valid as anything else. But it does... You know, the film and the franchise is still struggling to escape from, you know, Iron Man's shadow. Yeah. Both in terms of the on-screen events and in terms of the, of to a certain extent, Marvel's reliance on that character. Well, I mean, the first uh, Spider-Man: Homecoming, Marvel's yeah. first uh, full-length Spider-Man movie, not counting Civil War, uh, was about Spider-Man trying to be Iron Man's apprentice and yes. also his partner in the Avengers. And here, now that you've all seen Endgame. You've all seen it. Yeah. It made all the money on the planet. I'm going to ruin the ending. <laughs> Tony Stark is dead. <gasps> what? Oh. But he's got to, now he's got to live up to being Tony Stark's chosen one. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. And no, it's, it's not, not actually. I actually didn't like this movie. <laughs> really? I actually did not like this movie. There are things I like about it. I think the young cast is great. I actually think the whole cast is really, really great. I think there's some fun writing here. This is the... Let's see. If you count the 1977 live-action Spider-Man film, which was released theatrically in some markets, this is like the eighth live-action Spider-Man yeah. movie. Ninth, if you count Into the Spider-Verse. This is the only one of those movies that I feel didn't need to be told. Hmm. This is like the only one where, like, even the movie itself is literally like, we would rather be on vacation. <laughs> like, we don't want to be part of this. Spider-Man constantly says, I'd rather be on vacation. And everyone's like, yeah, you, you should be on vacation. This this thing sucks. We got elementals. Even we don't, like, all the dialogue about the elementals, like, oh, yeah, we have earth, water, air, and fire. We know it's stupid. That's it. That's kind of like the whole <laughs> bit. It's kind of like the movie is not really convinced that it is important. All of the actual like emotional and dramatic heft of it is really muted all of it is just like little relationship squabbles if homecoming was trying to be like a john hughes movie where it's all about like sort of serious teen relationship stuff and people trying to figure themselves out and grow up this feels like the teen movies that like john hughes was responding to this feels like a gidget movie like gidget goes to rome <laughs> but mysterio is there and gidget mm. is spider-man like that's kind of the vibe i got of this is incredibly insubstantial Hmm. Even by Marvel standards, because they can make some pretty flighty type movies, and that's often very, very fun. But here, there just wasn't any heft to it. Like I, I didn't buy it. I didn't care. 
I, I was on the opposite side of it. I, I'm, I, but I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of the MCU. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm a fan of all their movies. There have been some movies that I was not so much of a fan of. Sure. But I, I thought that it was. I like where they took the story. I yeah. like where they set things up. I liked how they dealt with what happened in Endgame. Um, Let me ask you this. Let me ask yeah. you this. As as someone who really likes the movie, and feel free to chip yeah. in anyway. Um, what is this movie? About. I'm not talking about the plot. I'm talking about what's on its mind. Besides just Will I Live Up to Iron Man, which is pretty thin. I felt it was a test for Peter Parker to be the next Iron Man. That's what I that's, that's But you what see what that's got. dissatisfying? Like it was a constant. <laughs> you see what that's kind of dissatisfying? But, but I mean, in like the middle of it, there were jokes. There was, you know, there was. I'm not arguing. You get to see. That's why I was entertained with it. But I'm just, so yeah. I'm just saying I feel like it's shallow. Yeah. You know, like it's I, shallow entertainment. It's entertainment, but it's shallow entertainment. I would, that, oh, oh, sorry. I would, <laughs> I would argue. I would say that it's about the weight of the past. Mm-hmm. I would say that it is about um, consequences to things that you were both in control of directly and things that you're not in control of directly. Expectation, uh-huh. um, and that is the theme that is repeated through a lot of Spider-Man movies. Does it's, it strike you the as, weight of expectation? Does it strike you as disingenuous that we're talking about if the film is about the weight of the past and people mm-hmm. that we've lost and living up to that, and Spider-Man cares so much about living up to Tony Stark, and Uncle Ben doesn't mention doesn't deserve a mention ever over the course of any of his appearances other than a brief appearance of his suitcase, which gets thrown away and no one gives a crap about it. I think you were reading my mind right now, because I was yeah. about to mention that. Yeah. But, but, Isn't that weird? but that's yeah. assuming that Uncle Ben in this current, uh, mythology is a, a key part of Peter Parker's life. That, that's not been established. I'm not going to put onto this version of Spider-Man the things that the other versions of Spider-Man have had imprinted on them. Okay. I, I think that Tony Stark is very much playing the role perhaps that Uncle Ben played in this version of Peter Parker's life. So you're, but if, if I'm curious though if we found out in Spider-Man 3 or Avengers 8 or whatever the hell mm-hmm. uh, that that origin was real would that change your interpretation like not Spider-Man that Uncle Ben that that whole story did happen would that change your interpretation? I, I mean I think it's it's very likely that it did happen. I think that it was very underplayed in Civil War when Robert Downey Jr. first meets uh, Peter Parker when he talks about the, the, very kind of alluding to the idea that 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 you can if you have power you can you can perhaps prevent things from happening. I just think that they smartly said this has been done so many times and is weighed on so heavily on these two previous iterations of Spider-Man that we're going to take it a different way. So I, I don't mind that. I asked the director because I got a chance to interview him about. Yeah. I asked him about Uncle Ben. He mentioned the the briefcase. I didn't notice it in the trailer, or whatever. But he said they haven't really. Thought about it? I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. no, it's something that's still open. Well, yeah, they, they, they haven't they, confirmed they haven't, it so they can they do anything they want. Pl- according to him, they didn't plan it out yet. They okay. haven't had a board meeting or whatever they do. I don't know. Scott, you've well, been trying to talk for a while. No, that's okay. Um, <laughs> I think the issue with the specifically the Uncle Ben stuff is them perhaps learning the wrong lessons of the quote-unquote failure of the Amazing Spider-Man, which is, it was, you know, and this is my issue with the first movie, at least, that it was too similar to Sam Raimi's pictures. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like, oh, you know, we don't want to have any mention of Uncle Ben because I don't remind people that they've seen this before. The, and that's fine. The problem is they take away the Uncle Ben story, but they just throw on, you know, they take that drink and pour it into a Tony Stark cup. So yeah. it's the same story. And that was my issue with Homecoming. It's like, oh, we're not going to do an origin. We're not going to do an origin. And then you have a story where it's the origin of how Peter Parker learns to be a better hero and be responsible for himself so he can learn to be the Avengers. Like, that's still an origin. Doesn't that strike you as sort of on the sort of a meta level? As Marvel finally has the character, but Sony still technically has the rights. So we're still gonna we're gonna make all of these movies about how the MCU is awesome. 
<laughs> yeah. A little, just a little on the nose. Anyone? Anyone else um, feel like that's a little bit of a joke? And yeah, I, mean, I think it works like that. I would like um, to ask. I would like to ask everybody, like, because we've had so many different like th- cinematic interpretations of Spider-Man. Can't imagine anyone's going for the '70s version, but from the Sam Raimi <laughs> version to the Mark Webb version to this version to End of the Spider Verse. Who's your Spider-Man? Like, who speaks to you the most? And what? Because there are all different interpretations of the character. I've heard a lot of people talking about why Garfield was their favorite or Maguire was their favorite. Who and why? Sam Raimi's all the way. Okay. Because the, it was one of the first. I don't know if that has anything to do. The music was spectacular. <laughs> um, and he starts. It's been a long time, but the movie starts off with like all good stories start off with a girl or something like that. I think I'm paraphrasing. And mm. it just like hooked me I, I don't know there's something magical about that film and I think the score you uh, really the, love that score I love that score okay. man and I, and, and I love the the way they did um, like how he feels responsible for what happened to Uncle Ben it just yeah. it just hit me uh, and I, I think people forget that that movie was huge when oh, it came out. Biggest and, movie ever. And now people yeah, are kind of saying, oh, anyway. no, it's not, it wasn't that good. And it's like, no, dude, like that. <laughs> people were freaking out when they saw that. As a matter of fact, I think Spider-Man 2 knocked uh, Star Wars, or Spider-Man knocked Star Wars Episode 2 as the number one uh, in the box office. At least yes. opening weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, in total. In total, yeah. the year. Uh, and that's, domestic. I'm not sure that's, worldwide off the top of my head. It was huge. Yeah. And that's uncalled for, you know, yeah. to be the well, at least back then, to yeah. be the Star Wars movie. You know what I mean? So, Scott, uh, favorite uh, the first Sam Raimi picture. Okay, uh, even though I think Spider Verse is probably a better film, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I still distinctly remember sitting in the theater on opening night. It was May third, two thousand two, and hearing that music and seeing the opening credits and thinking, you know, because I had known enough to read of the years and years of legal tiddlywinks and near misses and all that jazz, and thinking. It really was unreal that, hey, I'm actually finally watching a Spider-Man movie. <laughs> and it was good. Yeah. It also fo- it also was the first film of summer 2002, and it was following what I thought was a pretty lousy previous summer hmm. uh, in terms of popcorn entertainment. Pearl Harbor, Tomb uh, Raider, uh, Rush Hour 2, Planet uh, of the Apes. Uh, I mean, you know, when I'm Section next- 9... Yes. <laughs> okay. That's what I saw while everyone else I knew was seeing Rush Hour. Uh, <laughs> and it was also, it stood out at the time, because for me at least, it was basically the first big, big, big comic book superhero movie of this nature that was a character drama first and a superhero movie second. Well, it was a four-quadrant superhero yeah. movie. Before that, we had X-Men and yes. Blade, and those were hit Marvel movies, but they were solidly action movies. Yeah. Here we had one with romance, and we had drama. Uh, Dan, you've been very silent. Uh, yeah, I, it's well, it's very because I, I I still think the Spider-Man Two, Raimi's Spider-Man Two, is my favorite. It's still the best Spider-Man movie. But I mean, it's hard for me to pick a favorite because I think what this version of Spider-Man has been able to balance a little bit more was that I feel like Raimi's trilogy and both of the Garfield movies were weighted so heavily in the favor of being very upset over the weight of being Spider-Man. Yeah. That they only fleetingly ever mentioned the fun of being Spider-Man. The fact that I am this kid in high school that has these powers. And hey, every once in a while, it's kind of cool. And I can go up to adults because I'm in a mask and be a smartass. Um, and no one cares because nobody knows who I am. Um, 
I feel like these last two have actually, and Civil War and his other appearances, have actually embraced that in a way that the other two did not. And that really, that was always my favorite part of the character was, it's not that Andrew Garfield has a fun, quippy scene where he's webbing guys in a parking lot and then <laughs> then is very upset about things for the rest <laughs> of the movie. Um, I like that, I think that they balanced it more in this in this version of the character. Having said that, it's this is unfinished. So, you know, if you'd asked me before Spectre, who my favorite James Bond was, Daniel Craigwood would have rated much more highly on my list, but he's made more movies since then. Um, so I will say that Raimi's Spider-Man 2 is continues to be my favorite Spider-Man movie, but I have a great affection for this version of the character. Yeah, I would say Spider-Verse is my favorite Spider-Man That's movie a great one, right too. Now. I do think that movie's pretty impeccable, but for me, it's all about the interpretation of Spider-Man, and they're all valid. This is a fun-loving Spider-Man who doesn't have all the hang-ups about personal responsibility. He's a responsible person, but he's not neurotic about it. The thing is, though, is that as a kid reading Spider-Man comics, he was the neurotic superhero, and I was a neurotic kid who overthought everything and had a guilt complex, and I actually understood that whereas Superman was Superman because it was the right thing to do, and Batman did it out of dark vengeance, Spider-Man did it because he couldn't handle the guilt of not doing it, and there was something really compelling about that, and I feel like only Sam Raimi's version has really been about that, and I think that gave them the movies so much more kind of depth than the Garfield one, which is all about him being like a chosen one and plagiarizing his dad's work and breaking deathbed promises to people like <laughs> within minutes, and I just couldn't get behind it. I like this one a lot. I, I do like Tom Holland. I think Tom Holland is arguably the best Spider-Man mm-hmm. I think we've ever had. I think he's he's a delight, and I want to see him do the part like forever. He can do it till he's eighty. As far as I'm concerned, he's not going to age. It's funny because I was reading an interview today. It was like the ultimate backhanded compliment. He said, uh, "He said something like, oh, I think it was Entertainment Weekly.' He said, oh, I love, I love doing this role. He's like, I'll be in 26 movies. I don't care. I'll do this until I'm Hugh Jackman's age.'" <laughs> Which, if you're Hugh Jackman, it's just oh, like, that's, thank you. That's <laughs> I love that he's actually Spider-Man. Yeah. Like when he's he's really, really old movie aliens. Oh, God, I'm yeah. so old. I'm so old. <laughs> I do, I think I give this film a slight pass, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. because I vastly prefer the Peter Parker stuff to the Spider-Man stuff, and I also believe that if you're going to hit one out of two, that's the one you need to hit. I'll agree to that. I'll agree to that. I just feel like I just feel like even the Peter Starker stuff was kind of insubstantial. You know, this is the MCU. People are going to see every single movie, and indeed, I don't think the MCU. I think even the worst MCU movie, which is probably either Thor: The Dark World or Iron Man Two, depending on who you talk to, but even they're not terrible. They've never whiffed it. Like at least not in films. Incredible Hulk. Yeah, I rewatched Incredible Hulk. I quite like the Incredible. Fair Hulk. enough. I think it's a, I think it's an action movie more than the other ones are. And it was this was like back when the Marvel Universe was kind of defining itself, and that was kind of an outlier. Yeah, but I still don't think that's a complete miss. I, I just feel like they've never completely screwed it up. So this is fine. Incredible Hulk. That's not Ang Lee's. Ang Lee's no. was. Yeah, yeah I, I like but that's not part of the MCU. That's, no. uh, Ang Lee's yeah. version is bold, which I appreciate, yeah. even if it doesn't hit everything. You but this dug is, that one? I like it. I, have, yeah. I admire it. Yeah. For me, I just feel like this is the first MCU movie in like a really long time where I tell someone like, you didn't see it in theaters. You can wait. You can wait for TV. You can wait for streaming on this. Mm. It's really not that important. Hmm. Well, with the exception, I would of disagree. One hmm. act, major action scene in the second act. There's some cool stuff there. Yeah, there's there's nothing that. Mm. Oh God! You have to see this on a big screen. Are we going to do any spoilers? Um, let's maybe let's avoid it. I don't think we need to get in there. But like, 
But Dan, you 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 just you really do think this is an important movie to see in like in the experience. I I mean I think that it's a comedy. For, uh, it's very funny. So I yes. always think that comedies are more fun to see in a theater than at home uh, with either by yourself or with a couple of other people. Um, but the people that know me know that I'm also the the one of the people that's still yelling at people to go to the movies because you can't <laughs> replicate that experience anywhere because yeah. you can't. Um, I, I, I know people say, "Well, I have a projection screen in my house." Like I <laughs> no, get, you can you can replicate the size of something but not the experience of something yeah. uh, but I think but there are sequences in this movie that I think are very cinematic and do lend- that's why I said it's a great summer movie like watching this I was like this feels like a throwback to when they made these big epic movies that weren't stupid um, and you hated every word that was coming out of somebody's mouth uh, that that rewarded you for going to see something in a theater because it had the scale, it was thought out, it was planned to be seen that way, and there are other sequences, like we said, that, that tie into uh, other characters in the movie that I thought it was so great to see that 50 feet tall because it looked like it was snatched out of a comic book sure. uh, and thrown out there uh, into the movie. It's also, you know, it's a good fo- to me, it's a good follow-up to Endgame because all the importance of those films, Endgame, and you just like this is just a follow up where it's it's a little more lighthearted, less important, less epic, but just good summer fun. I think it, it's a good uh, good follow up. Yeah. I do appreciate. It. I really, I really, really, really like the first thirty minutes or so of this picture yeah. before yeah. it became you know an action picture more or less. Mm-hmm. But and I loved as someone that has take an issue with what I consider a half-hearted solution of Endgame to Thanos' big scheme. Yeah. I liked this film kind of took the piss take out of that a little bit. I, I actually like that as a, you know, a source for comedy. You have all the power in the world and you only use it to kill. Thanks, Iron Man. Uh, okay, we gotta move on. We, are, we were talking about Midsummer earlier and Midsummer is one is an independent horror movie. And we've reached this interesting point where whereas blockbuster cinema is getting infinitely more expensive, Horror cinema has gone micro-budget over the last 10 years, and as a result, the difference between the majority of studio horror product and indie horror product, visually, very similar. You're not like, you don't get that whole, do I need to see this in the theater? It's all sort of of equal caliber. So we've seen a lot of great indie horror movies emerge over the last 10 years, and we've also seen some that whiffed it. So we wanted to take some time to look at where this particular part of the genre has been going, and I want to start talk, talking very, very positive here. Dan, what's your favorite mm. indie horror film of the, of the last few years, or whatever you brought for us? Sure. Well, uh, uh, to keep it from being an Ari Aster Fest, I won't say Hereditary, <laughs> even though that's my actual answer, but it's yeah. a similar movie okay. uh, that scared me a lot, which was uh, Jennifer Kent's uh, The Babadook. Ah, I love that movie. I, I know, you know, it's... Uh, I think it counts as indie. It, it is. Yeah, it's indie. Um, it was at Sundance. Yeah, it's fine. You know, it's, it's, it's harder to tell nowadays because every studio has their divisions. That we have, what, Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I if love, it ever needed to find distribution, I think it counts. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I, I think that, that there are horror movies that, that are just slasher films that want to say that they work as a metaphor when it's like, no, you're just are, you, you, you're trying to add a layer that's not there. And I think that there's some <laughs> horror films, particularly indie horror films, that get so into the metaphor that they forget to be scary and I think that the Babadook is like a perfect uh, uh, example of both and that it works as a larger metaphor for what these characters are going through but at the same time that movie scared the crap out of me the 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 way that the, that they that Jennifer Kent crafted the scares in that movie the sound design the way that the that sound works in that movie when to show the monster how much of the monster to show uh, the the settings uh, the, just even the things like watching on television and seeing herself in the show on TV like very haunting imagery yeah. that's the kind of stuff with 
horror that gets to me. I hate jump scares, uh, but at the same time, they don't scare me that much. It's just like, ah, why did you do that? It's, it's like when one of your friends does it, like, I, I hate you. Stop that. Um, People always do that in horror movies. They always jump at each other like, ha, ha. Who does that? I don't know anyone who does that. My Even when I was a kid, no one did that. young. But yeah. uh, with the jump scares, they're very projected nowadays. I mean, yeah. You know when they're coming. It's like mm-hmm. three, two, jump scare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, watch, watch, e- scary. watch Evil Dead 2 sometime and time the jump scares. They're always at different times. It's never on a three. It's a three, then it's a yeah, five, then it's an eight. <laughs> and it keeps you on your toes, even though it's a very jump scare-centric movie. Yeah, they've gotten really formulaic. I love The Babadook. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful movie. I love uh, its roots in German expressionism. I like that they created a monster that doesn't look like other monsters, but feels like we've always known it. Mm-hmm. What a what a great monster, uh, uh, Scott. What's your favorite movie from my life? This was from a while back, um, but it always stood out just because it's good. It's it's a direct. I saw it on direct to video. I think it was back when Sam Raimi was distributing some overseas horror pictures. Yeah. I don't remember what the label was called. I want to say Dark House, but not, certainly that, not that Dark be, Castle. No, it might be Dark House actually. Okay, that, sounds, yeah, yeah. that doesn't sound wrong. Uh, the Children. Yeah, it's an Australian horror picture. Basically, it's about a, a couple. Of, families that go vacationing together and one thing leads to another and their children drink out of a stream that's been contaminated. Um, although they're very vague about you know what all this stuff is because it's kind of beside the point and they become murderous animals. Mm. And it's a relentlessly scary picture and it's, you know, it's a very elemental question. As a parent, would you murder your own children to save your own life? Yeah. Um, Scott, you're a pa- you're a father. How do you? Depends on which kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, we won't we won't delve into it further than that. Out of respect, there'll always be plausible deniability. They know what they did. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> it's got dark. It's got dark real fast. Um, <laughs> I apologize for taking us there. No, no, no. Lewis, save us. What's your what's your Andy? Uh, uh, you know it. I'm with you because I kind of feel like I can't, I can't tell what's an indie film anymore because you got those big mm-hmm. movie companies like it's, yeah it's my it's, point. A, it's a twenty million dollar indie film what the hell what I don't even have ten bucks look I'm gonna say VHS I like that one I like Trick or Treat also indie um, I like how, the original Halloween I'm sorry that's way older than ten years but from that's me. super indie yeah, yeah, yeah that was, that was it, not a studio with, production with a grindhouse feel uh, the original Saw. Also, Andy, yeah, you're, you're doing great. You're, you're <laughs> Night, Night of the Living Dead, the, all the Romeros. Not all of them were indie, but yeah, that works. The, yeah, the, the, well, the Land of the Dead wasn't indie. Land of the Dead was a studio. Production. Okay, yeah. I kind of forgot that one. Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. I think that it's, one's really underrated. It's, it's fun. It's got some. Yeah. It's got some smart stuff in it. The first one though, the '60s one, oh. scared the poop out of me. I know that's older. <laughs> I wasn't around, but I was watching that as a kid. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, why is this movie in black and white? Well, so much of the so scary. So much of the <laughs> classic horror movies that we know were. Independent films because those are the films that were able to push the boundaries of what is acceptable, not just you know in terms of gore, but in terms of content. You know, you can have films about sex and violence, but it's okay because now it's an allegory, and people will be like, okay, now we're slightly distanced from it. Mm-hmm. So you can do a film about necrophilia as long as you call it Bride of Frankenstein in the 1930s. <laughs> you know, uh, for me, uh, a f- uh, independent horror film from the last few years that really blew my mind, and nobody talked about it, and it really bummed me out, uh, was Marjan. Satrapi's The Voices, starring Ryan Reynolds. 
Uh, and I think it's Ryan Reynolds' best performance by far. Uh, he plays a young man who works at, I think it's like a toilet factory? Like, just some lame job. And uh, he's feeling really great. Everything's super nice. His world is really colorful and full of cool people. And, uh, you know, every day he like gets off work and comes home. And then the cat and the dog talk to him and tell him to do things. And eventually he finds himself like on a date with somebody and it goes really, really bad. And wouldn't you know it? He just can't, he just ends up killing her. What am I? It's so weird how that happened. And the dog and the cat are telling him how to get rid of the body. And on one hand, it's really terrifying because you're seeing it from the perspective of how Leatherface actually sees himself <laughs> as the hero in his own story. And he has absolutely no idea, idea that what he's doing is bad. Um, but then the movie starts taking some really fascinating turns and starts focusing on real mental health issues and the idea of how taking medication changes who you are. And that might be something that's worth preserving if you're who you are is indeed a serial killer. Um, so... Yeah, it's a really fascinating film. It is terrifying in some really unexpected ways, um, and I wish more people would see it. And if anyone is watching this who hasn't seen The Voices, it's so good. And I, really hope, I really hope people I check it out. It. Yeah. Yeah, you liked it, too? No, and, and as the owner of an orange cat, I have to say, the <laughs> it's a documentary. Yes, they are, they are nightmare <laughs> yes. creatures. Yes. But not all indie horror films are good. And I think there's that sort of distinction. We have this nonsense term, the elevated horror movie, which is just a horror movie, but it's good, so I don't want to call it a horror movie because I think the genre is bad, which I think is a terrible take. Um, but are there any indie horror films that either got hyped up too much or just kind of showed you that they're not all they're cracked up to be? Is there an indie horror film that you just really didn't like? It took me a while to come to terms on The Blair Witch Project. I was okay. one of those idiots that when I was 19 years old, you know, six months of hearing this is the scariest movie ever made. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think we can talk spoilers, the movie's 20 years old. I think it's fine. Um, <laughs> you know, the idea is, you know, I, I took it too literally. You know, mm -hmm. so I'm sitting there in the theater, I'm like, oh, so they found the footage, they don't know what happened to these people, that means we're not actually going to see anything particularly frightening, because otherwise they wouldn't know what happened to these people. Okay. Um, I've, Technically I watched true. it. Mm -hmm. I watched it again for its 10-year anniversary, and I'm not going to say it's some giant masterpiece, but I was able to take it less as a horror film and more as a, you know, oh, God, these kids are lost in the woods. Yeah, it's an exercise and, in desperation. Yes, and yeah. in that sense, it works. But that was a case where it wasn't that it was too hyped up. It's that the, I think the marketing narrative was... I mean, obviously, the movie made a fortune, so it worked. Right, but, but it built it up too much for some people, yeah. It made me expecting the wrong kind of movie. Yeah. And I wasn't quite mature enough to disassociate that. Well, some yet. people have very rigid expectations of what yes. the horror genre is or, quote, should be. And I think it's way more diverse than that. Mm -hmm. uh, Dan, what comes to your mind? Uh, well, I think there's, because I'm, I admittedly, uh, and it's, it's, it's helping because I now have a partner who she's very much into horror, so I'm much more into horror than, horror than I used to be, and I'm discovering more and more. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm still kind of uh, uh, fairly new as, as far as diving deeper into the genre, just because, as I mentioned, jump scares make me nervous. They're 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 difficult experiences for me. But there are a couple taking Schmodown notes. There are a couple that doesn't mean I don't know about them. Uh, there are a couple of things. There are a couple of patterns that I don't like. Number one being there are movies like It Comes at Night and The Witch that I feel are, as you were saying, promoted a certain way. Um, so that you they come they're, they're at these festivals or whatever and they come in with all these hypes it's like this is the most terrifying movie that I've seen in 25 <laughs> years and yeah, then like no. and, but that's not what you should walk into the witch or it comes at night expecting but they're painted as that which I don't think is fair so no. I don't like that and then 
I also don't like knowing that if there is a great indie horror film that really breaks through, that you're going to get maybe one good sequel out of it, and then they're going to be run into the ground. There's going to be one coming out every single year until mm-hmm. they're sick of it. Everyone's sick of it, and nobody cares anymore. They and killed it's Paranormal Activity. They killed Paranormal First Activity. First one's great. Third one's actually really good. But, man, but the fifth one... We got time travel and super soldiers, and then we have a 3D ghost camera. Wow, that jumped the shark! But they make the original ones worse because when you in a vacuum, when you see it originally, when it's its own thing, it's like wow, that was a really kind of interesting little thing. But then when it's one of six, you're like, oh, okay, I don't really care. And it's like because they ran it into the ground over seven years. Well, not even that. Like the fifth one, the marked ones in Paranormal Activity. Just to go back to that, you know that great vague ending in Paranormal Activity where they're screaming off camera mm-hmm. and your imagination goes wild what could it possibly have been they show you what it was in the fifth one and it's absurd yeah it's absurd and kind of racist <laughs> you're just watching it like wow i like the, i like yeah. the so now i'm curious it's my so, favorite yeah. one is it really yeah i loved it i can relate to all the characters man. Well, that's cool. <laughs> i think what's interesting about the saw franchise and i'm weird i actually like you know i'm not huge in the first song i actually like some of the sequels yeah. but the too. first that saw is. is so different from the sequels that even if you hate the sequels the, the original is still its own thing it's it's kind of a mystery the, yeah, yeah it reminds me of the star trek series where you've got star trek motion picture then it's but it's star trek wrath of Khan's where set the template for the franchise mm-hmm. overall yeah well it's uh, friday the 13th was yeah. the exact same way uh lewis I, oh i was just in it i love saw and I hate the fact that it's so hard to like pass on the torch of killers. And when they, spoiler alert, when they got rid of Amanda, yeah. come on, man, she was perfect. I was like, yeah. why did you get rid of that character for her? You know, and that's when it, <laughs> for me. I actually thought Costas Mandalore was really great. And that's a sentence I never thought I'd get to say. <laughs> he came into his own and saw six, which is one of the reasons why that one's so good. I think that one's really rock solid. Uh, for me, uh, the, the indie horror film series frankly that I, I started off being oh god but it's a real movie and then oh <laughs> Jesus but it's a real movie and then the third one I'm like okay I'm out I'm gone thank you no more human centipedes oh wow yeah. <laughs> like the first human centipede is like it's not even a movie it's just a concept you tell people the concept of the human centipede and they go okay I'm already scared that's great you don't need to see it you just know it exists it's like a geek show the important thing is that people did it not that it was meaningful the second one is absolutely repulsive but at least it's kind of a real movie and it has like a character and stuff Human Centipede 3 Final Sequence uh, is maybe the most repulsive movie I've ever seen and I have a strong constitution I love the horror genre I love a lot of trauma movies its attitude is so hateful and cruel. Like, I just can't get on its wavelength. And I'm not sure I trust people who do. It's really... I appreciate that you're able to do something that wild and daring outside the studio system. That doesn't mean it needs to be made. It doesn't mean it's a good movie. (laughs) Did anyone else see the third one? Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, you're with me. Two was enough for me. I tapped out Those aren't for me. Those aren't for me. I tapped out five minutes into one. Yeah. I don't I don't blame you at all. I, I will I will go to bat for the first one as yeah. not quite as like repulsive as you'd think. Like it is a real movie. Mm-hmm. Well, but it's that's also subtler, if I recall. It is. It's just it it's is. it's not like in your face. Yeah. It's all about building up to this thing. Yeah. We'll tell you we're going to do it. We we'll tell you we're going to do it, and then they do it, and it is indeed scary, and yeah. then it ends. It's like yeah, the first Saw film, which isn't yeah. nearly as grotesque as people like to assume. No, I mean, it's gross, but it's not yeah. that gross. Yeah, like, I mean, the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the second and third, yeah, they... they 
really put <laughs> they, it. They are bluffing. No, no they're <laughs> not. But on a, on a lighter note, on a lighter note, because we're going to end on this topic with nine minutes and 40 seconds to go, uh, we wanted to talk about our favorite vacation movie. So we're going to go from <laughs> The Human Centipede to Beach Blanket Bingo. Uh, I want to talk about what are your favorite movies about vacations? Isn't that a delight? You're welcome, audience. <laughs> we're going to take you from the, on, on this little journey. Uh, Lewis, why don't we start with you? I would have to say Hangover. Would that be a... That yeah, would, I would say Hangover. Trip, yeah. I think that's a difficult one. I mean, unless you go va- vacation, you know, with Chevy Chase. <laughs> that's a cliche. I, mean, yeah, I appreciate the Hangover. I, I'm trying yeah. to think outside the box here, but what, yeah. What, what, do you th- what do you love about the Hangover? Because I feel like the sequels kind of marred the original for me. Well, the sequel, man. I, someone needs to make a documentary out of that. But what were they thinking? <laughs> like, you know, like, what do you what do you think? It's the same movie, but literally, literally the same. Movie. Yeah, it's just weird. Um, I like it, the dark comedy uh, aspect of it, and also that was kind of new for me uh, yeah. experiencing it. It's like you're laughing at the things you shouldn't be laughing at. Uh, I don't know, but but I think that's that's a good one. But again, it's a difficult subject for me because they're vacation movies. <laughs> who Green Inferno? Who here has had a vacation <laughs> in, in the last couple of years? I would like to. Yeah, I, would like, exactly. I, I have it. Oh, lucky Forbes. So much fun. Forbes. Oh, I'm working on. <laughs> oh, okay, fine. All right, Scott. I mean, what's your favorite vacation movie? Honestly, I I hate to do this, but The Hangover was better than any of the things I was thinking. So All I'm right, borrow what's, that. what's your number two? Uh, Come on, you're a film critic. Got to recommend a movie. I've you know of late, Midsummer is one of the more enjoyable ones I've seen. <laughs> I had a really good time with the film. Great. Um, it yeah, was, it was, you know, I laughed at all the funny parts and some yeah. of the not so funny parts too. And it's, 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 and again, I think that sort of explains why it's not taking on cinema score that it's fun oh. in a way that I wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend Midsummer to someone? Do you have to be careful who you recommend it to because of the yeah. <laughs> second well, half? Like, a lot of survey uh, to see if yeah, you should recommend it's it. It's like Lewis told me to go to this. What? <laughs> well, I mean, that's, yeah. why, that's why we talk about the cinema score because cinema yeah. score is all based on, it's not based on is the movie good, mm-hmm. it's based on did I buy a ticket for the movie that yes. I saw. Yeah. If so, if it gives me exactly what I bought a ticket for, yeah. good. If I feel like it betrayed me, like you know, Darren Aronofsky's mother felt like it was kind of mismarketed, uh, people turn on and give it a bad cinema score. Yeah. Uh, but would you do you feel like Midsummer's a safe yes. bet? Okay. As long as you know a little bit about what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. Then yeah, and I think one of the reasons that horror sometimes suffers from cinema score grades is that you have people that think it's too scary and they get mm-hmm. you know disturbed, and people that think it's not scary enough for one reason or another. Yeah, and so you're basically dealing with you know the, the analogy I always use is that you know when they were trying to get Obamacare passed, you know the majority of the public was against it not because they didn't want it because you had a chunk that thought it was oh socialized medicine, and the other chunk on the left thought we want a private option. So you get nailed on both sides. Yeah, mm-hmm. would you consider Midsummer a, a musical? Not so much as the I Wicker Man. Call I would it a say. If you look at the original Wicker Man, that's a musical. Yeah, they're full of folk music that's telling the story. Midsummer has a lot of music in it. I think we're getting a literal, a little too generous with our application of the word musical. Just because a movie like Bohemian Rhapsody is not a musical, it has music in it. It's about musicians. But I don't Rocket think it's Man, I would argue, is a musical. I haven't seen that yet, but based on everything I've heard, yeah. Because okay. they, yeah. Have, they have musical numbers in it. Yeah. Like, direct-to-camera, old-style dance numbers. They're telling the story. Yes. I would say Bohemian Rhapsody is not a musical, but Rocket Man is. Fair enough. Dan, what's your favorite vacation movie? Uh, I, I am a big fan of What About Bob. <laughs> oh. I like that movie. Uh, it's it's harder to find. It's one of those that never has made it to Blu-ray. I have my DVD of it still. I I'm sure you could probably so rent it on Amazon or whatever, but yeah. if you want to own it at home, you have to go SD. Um, but- I'm saying! 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, what I love about it is my uh, my my only criticism of the movie, or my biggest criticism of the movie, would be that I think because they probably got a lot of studio notes, Frank Oz did when he was making the movie, that the studio told him that like, well, by the third act, you have to very clearly delineate who the good guy is and who the bad guy is, because mm. by the end of it, it is like they draw the distinct line between like, okay, but here's the person you're rooting for, and here's the person you're not. I don't. I found that kind of subversive, actually. Yeah. Uh, they, I, I like the way that Richard Dreyfuss is. I think Richard Dreyfuss between that and Let It Ride is one of the most underrated comic actors. I, I, I agree with you, first of all. I think he's yeah. hilarious. I guess I just love so much of that movie where it is the battle of the wills between both of them, and neither of them is right. Mm-hmm. Like, Richard Dreyfuss is being pompous and too self-important and too obsessed with, the, with being on television and, like, way up his own butt as a psychiatrist. But Bob is also wrong to be tracking him down while he's on his vacation, and it's that battle of the wills between well, the two of them that by the end, I'm just like, I, I wish you hadn't made it so easy to be like, but I don't like him now. I, I see a symmetry in that, though, uh-huh. where Bob starts out with all the problems and Richard Dreyfus seems pretty straight, pretty well together, and by the end of it, their positions have completely reversed. Mm-hmm. And there's something just sort of exquisitely tragic about that. And yeah. just Because the actors are so fun. I don't know, I like the ending. Well, I, but the reason that the ending still works for mm-hmm. me is because they're both so great. And, and to see Dreyfus go mm-hmm. so big um, <laughs> by the end, it, it works on a comedy level. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, I wonder if there's a more interesting movie out there, version of that out there. But I, I, I really like it. I've been told I sound like Richard Dreyfus. Do I sound like Richard Dreyfus? A little bit. Like, get a little up here. Yeah. yeah. I'm having a very good day. See, that's bad Dreyfus. I'm doing it this way. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, our producer, wants us to mention Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which I guess we forgot. And The oh, Way, way Back, which I guess was way, way back on our list. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for me, listen, I have this long list of vacation movies <laughs> because I wanted, I wanted to make sure if you guys picked something I wanted to pick, uh, it was all here. And there's a ton of stuff on here. Everything from Jaws to the mm-hmm. Hotel Transylvania movies, which I think are actually very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one I'm actually going to uh, go with is a movie I've revisited recently, and it works on so many weird levels. Weekend at Bernie's. When was the last time you actually watched Weekend at Bernie's? Oh, it's been 30 it's been years. Yeah. It's been a weird, that's a weird... People do not talk about this enough. If you haven't seen Weekend at Bernie's, welcome. This is a treat. Um, it's a meme. Jonathan Silverman and Andrew McCarthy are uh, low-level goons at some stock market firm or whatever, and they discover some corruption, and their boss, Bernie, invites them to his to his like summer home in the Hamptons uh, to kill them. But instead, he gets killed by the assassin, and now they're here with a corpse, and a party just sort of shows up at his house, and they can't find a way to tell everybody that Bernie's dead, so they just pretend he's alive all weekend. (laughs) It's ghoulish. (laughs) Like, it's presented as this light comedy. It's horrifying. Like, the corpse just keeps washing up next to them as they're making out to people, with people, and it's like, it's always, like, this weird little nightmare, but because it's tonally, like, off, like a little 80s comedy... It doesn't read like the horror movie it really is. It's kind of amazing, and I do like it. What about the sequel where he's enchanted and can dance? Okay, that movie is absolutely amazing, and I love, I love any, I love any comedy sequel where they go completely insane, like Mannequin Two on the Move, where now all of a sudden there's like an ancient castle or whatever, and the only person they can bring back is Hollywood. Rest in peace, Hollywood. You were the best. Um, I, you know, I love the crazy sequel. I love every horror movie sequel that goes to space. Mm. Go for it. Yeah. Like, I don't care. <laughs> like, that is about Jason X is great. I don't care what anyone says. I it's love that movie. It's, it's a bad. fun movie, yeah, right? Um, so that's that. What do we got here? We got two minutes and seven seconds, so let's everybody plug your stuff. Mm. All right? Plug it. 
Dan, where can people find you? What is amazing about you lately? You can find me uh, on Screen Junkies and Fandom Entertainment, which is our second channel, where we do uh, reviews, news. Uh, I do a box office show. I'm a big reader of Scott's, and, and as I'm helping to gather resources and stuff. But yeah, you can find me there and on Twitter, at Merle Dan. Dan, do you have any words to Paul Oyama, who is no doubt watching you, ready for his big schmodown moment? Uh, just, I'm getting ready the same way he is, so... Right. I'm sure they'll, they'll get to use that in the in the montage. Yeah, that was really I'm sure they will. that was really great smack talk. <laughs> Scott, where can people find you? Uh, I write for Forbes, Forbes.com. The easiest way to find me is to Google some variation of Scott Mendelson, Forbes, Ticket Booth. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Scott Mendelson. I do have a Facebook page, and that's basically what I do. Uh, I try to drop around three to five articles a day. Not so much this week because of the holiday, and. I'm kind of relieved to finally be done with the Avengers updates. <laughs> Although I will miss the consistent traffic. Oh, Lewis. I'm on uh, nukethefridge.com. I run a, a YouTube channel called Nerd Report here, and you can follow me at NerdLeka on Twitter, and hopefully you guys follow me. I don't have a check mark yet, but maybe if you guys follow me, it'll, <laughs> it'll influence Twitter. I'll, you're, yeah. you're, you have a check mark in my heart. Thank you, man. It's yeah. really me. Awesome. And, uh, and I'm William Bibiani. You can read my work on publications like The Wrap, uh, Bloody Disgusting. I have a bunch of interviews with Ari Aster that are publishing this weekend. Nice. A lot of them are spoiler heavy, so I want to see the movie first. Uh, I have multiple podcasts. There's Critically Acclaimed for new movie reviews. There's The Two Shot, where we do a double feature of one of the best and worst movies uh, ever made every single week. Those are on the Schmozno uh, iTunes feed. We have Canceled Too Soon, where we review TV shows that lasted only one season or less. Uh, and we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critic acclaim, critically acclaimed was taken damn you uh, but uh, we have a bunch of exclusive content there including podcasts where we review every single episode of Star Trek in production order mm-hmm. and every single film ever nominated for best picture in chronological order so uh, check that out and I'm on Twitter at William Bibiani so thank you everybody for watching the LAOFCS weekly tell a friend Leave us a like. Hit the bell icon. I hear people on YouTube say that a lot. I don't know what it means, but I think it's good. Uh, And uh, thank you very, very much for joining us, and have a great 4th of July weekend. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. Views expressed herein are those of the host only, and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.